This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas, and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined this week by my colleagues Andrew Dykes and Ryan Duff, the top energy news team, and we're back to regular programming after our Rosebank blast, Rosebank Day, as it shall be hence remembered from here uh, till the end of time. Uh, calm down a bit now, guys. Back to normal. How are you both doing? Yeah, good. We're uh, team-handed up in Aberdeen this week at Floating Offshore Wind Conference, which we'll, I'm sure we'll get to in a bit. But yeah, it's good to be uh, good to be back mingling amongst the people. Ming- mingling amongst the people. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I'm just I'm just glad that uh, Rosebank didn't happen this week. I don't think we would have the, had the capability to do, uh, do everything we've done. Uh, it was mad week last week and uh, it's saying something that two days at a conference feels less like less work it's a hard life uh, that we lead um <laughs> anyway uh, but yeah it didn't it didn't get cancelled didn't go the way of hs2 did it so um but yeah it was a, a busy old a busy old time um but we'll kick off this week there has been news this week and we'll kick off with andrew um andrew it seems the regulator isn't too convinced by some of the electrification kind of woes slash efforts we've been seeing of late. Yeah, so that this uh, was a release that came out yesterday, Thursday. Um, it, it's one of these stories that I think is major news that kind of has the appearance of minor news, which I think is interesting. So this is uh, the North Sea Transition Authority saying it's now consulting with the sector on new plans to create, quote, specific pathways to aid emissions reduction. So that's it's notable because one of these specific pathways mentioned in the announcement is electrification which is safe to say in recent weeks has become uh, increasingly, if not contentious, then I'm going to use one of my favorite words, quixotic. Quixotic, wow. Impressive vocabulary, sir. Wow. <laughs> Someone has an English degree. Uh, so yeah, on Thursday, they announced that a new process of engagement with the sector amid concerns targets will be missed without further action, which I think is quite bold language from the regulator. I would say they're not usually quite as uh, as forthright with, with how they're framing these things, um, but that's notable in itself. Um, it also refers back to a letter they sent out to the industry in April, which warned that uh, producers that failure to invest in appropriate solutions like decarbonization and electrification could affect the granting of future consents. So in that letter, um, the NSTA made clear that licensees with an interest in an installation where investment is assessed as reasonable but no such investment is made should, in principle, have no expectation that the NSTA will issue any further consents to increase uh, production. So... This, uh, this update, uh, it was a consultation document essentially, and it, it outlined um, specific pathways for greenhouse gas emissions as part of this new OGA plan that they're calling it, um, which sets out proposed requirements for various aspects of uh, decarbonizing production. So there are four main areas. There's investment and efficiency, platform electrification and low carbon power, inventory, and then flaring and venting, all of which are kind of uh, familiar topics for the general decarbonization of upstream op- operations. Um, there's a few detailed requirements, um, which you can see in, in the document, um, but also lines the potential consequences, as we've mentioned, from failing to to meet those requirements. The uh, proposed measures around platform electrification, so that they're suggesting they could specify dates for the new fields to come online with electrification-ready infrastructure and dates that they would be fully electrified, so kind of harder targets than we've seen so far. At the moment, we've seen kind of pan-sector, pan-industry targets of uh, emissions reduction by... I think uh, 10% uh, by 2025, 25% by 2027, and 50% by 2030, uh, based on a 2018 baseline. The suggestion is that these could be kind of more specific, more asset-based, maybe even potentially operator-based, we're not sure at this point. Um, But it says that this uh, revised approach would provide, quote, certainty for industry and allow for clearer long-term planning. 
So there is a consultation document on their website. It's about 30 pages, but really only five questions to respond to, each of which is as those uh, topics as mentioned, you know, do you th- do you think we should be uh, do you agree or do you how do you think we should be regulating this and how do you think we should be kind of driving this forward? A lot of, of that document is setting out why why it's actually allowed to do this and all the powers that it has. <laughs> Weird flex, but, it, but okay. Yeah, they've made clear in recent years, I think, um, that they are prepared to be kind of a regulator with teeth, right? I think we've seen increasing kind of uh, voicings out of out of them that they're not just waving things through, that they are kind of taking a very vigilant appro- approach. And we've seen with things like um, breaching production consents or end emissions and flaring and stuff that they're willing to kind of find and to take these actions further. So I think, um, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a show of force. There's one interesting thing on the inventory section uh, as well, which I just want to read out. So um, in, in the consultation document, it says that an- analysis suggests that closing some low-producing installations could allow more and cleaner new production to come online while still reducing the overall uh, UKCS level of emissions. For assets with an emission intensity 50% above the basin average, relevant persons must set their company cessation of production date using societal carbon values. So... You know, I think implicit in that is is the idea that you know if if you are in the sort of lesser performers, shall we say, of of or older, especially older North Sea assets, and you are kind of seen as outliers versus the general trend, then there's an expectation that you will be kind of accelerating and and setting harder dates for for when you're going to bring that offline, and so that yeah, this newer, cleaner production in theory could come online while still meeting, meeting this overall flight path to uh, reduce emissions. I was going to say it's maybe worth saying that. Um, <laughs> The progress so far has been has been pretty good. I think we've covered, you know, a, a emissions report every year since since they've set these targets. Um, I think in twenty twenty one, and uh, we are now at I think twenty three percent reduction. So we're a few years ahead of that twenty five percent by twenty twenty seven. So the industry is doing well, but it seems like the low hanging fruit I think has thoroughly been kind of exhausted at the moment, and we are now looking at the barrel of these big electrification projects actually moving forward which I feel like you're about to jump in on. <laughs> uh, yeah, a little bit. Well, it, it does, it, you know, for the longest time we've heard from the NSTA that they're kind of dual mandates of um, net zero and, and maximizing economic recovery kind of go hand in hand. Um, it, it's starting to feel like that argument is really kind of starting to um, cause some pr- problems. It, as far as the electrification argument goes, um, it, it you know, so much of what's out there right now, it's not your big kind of Cambos and... Rosebanks, it's these little tiebacks, which still require their own kind of consents and permits and that. And they're all kind of tied back to these older, or many of them are tied back to these older um, hubs, which frankly, it's looking kind of challenging for electrification for. So, you know, if if the NSA was to withhold permits for these kinds of things, I think that would have a real a real impact on the, the maximizing economic recovery piece. I suppose it just a question of what they see as reasonable and you know what I get that old question, what do you see as new fields, you know, and, and to what extent do tiebacks uh, come into that? Yeah, I mean it's worth saying as well, you know, we've we've covered quite a few electrification stories in, in recent weeks, and especially since offshore Europe when I, there was kind of a, a lot of people showing their cards as to the status of things. Um, the NSTA has said in its its most recent uh, emissions report that it expects its central case of eight fully electrified assets to be required by 2030 at a minimum. Um, and I think we, we've had a lot of discussion around that in recent weeks. Uh, there's some major, I think um, we counted recently about 11 uh, assets that are kind of on the blocks, some of which, I mean, a couple of which are sort of tiebacks to shore directly because they're they're very near shore and that's kind of feasible, but a lot rely on, you know, this, this daisy chain, right, of, uh, of assets. And some of them are brand new as well, like the, the likes of Rosebank, the likes of Campbell are expected to be brought online, if not, 
fully electrified at the start of production than within a year or two of, of coming online. Um, and yet we've seen kind of a little bit of changing, shifting sentiments around the feasibility of a lot of those, especially the central North Sea, where I think the the kind of ROI figures on, you know, if you're closing down this, this asset in, you know, 10, maybe even less than that years, are you really going to see a benefit to your investment? And are you, are you in that case going to follow this inventory thing and maybe just think about closing it early, in which case do you then jeopardize other people's projects? Yeah, and, and, and the broader investment case for the UK, right? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one, to, interesting one to follow. Absolutely. Um, so I think, I think it's worth saying um, the, the analysts that we've spoken to this year, or certainly that I've spoken to this year, are kind of confident that this 2030 target is achievable but they still kind of in their models seem to think that it's mostly going to be through that inventory decommissioning and a bit of optimization and kind of nibbling around the edges rather than, you know, widespread cables being rolled out to, to every other asset. Um, so the NSTA consultation runs for eight weeks, I think from now until uh, the end of November. You can submit submissions directly to the regulator if you are responding, and they're holding a couple of workshops if you want to learn more from them directly. But we'll keep a close eye on those, I think. Absolutely, we will. Yeah, interesting to see how that plays out in the, the, the electrification piece. But uh, thank you, Andrew. And next up, we'll be over to uh, Ryan, who's been camping out at the P&J Live this week. In a world where the scarcity of key resources is starting to be felt and the impact of climate change is all too apparent, sustainable growth is no longer a choice, it is a necessity. Sustainable Growth Voice is a new online publication championing individuals and organisations that are pushing sustainable growth forward, making a positive impact on the environment, society and the economy. From innovative technologies solving sustainability challenges to social enterprises promoting inclusive growth and transformative policy initiatives, SG Voice covers the fundamental drivers at the heart of the new sustainable economy. Join the conversation that the world needs now. Visit SG Voice for knowledge, inspiration and insight from across the sustainable growth landscape. Okay, Ryan, well, actually both of you were at the Floating Offshore Wind Conference this week, but uh, Ryan, maybe just run us down uh, a bit about how it all went. Yeah, so uh, this week, uh, Renewable UK and uh, Scottish Renewables held their Floating Offshore Wind Conference in Aberdeen. Uh, like you say, I was at P&J Live, our home away from home with uh, the amount of conferences that we're often uh, out there covering. Not that it's a bad thing. Um, there was a lot of, so there was quite a bit of a buzz in the room. I spoke to a couple of developers that were saying that these type of events, these certain niche events are super, uh, super helpful. You know, everyone they could be hoping to chat to is all in one room. And over the few years that uh, this event has been running, it has grown quite quite considerably. Uh, Dan McGrail, CEO of Renewable UK, said um, just yesterday uh, at the time of recording, uh, the, the last day of the event, that uh, on Wednesday there was 2,300 people through the doors. Uh, that was from 800 companies across 29 nations. That's worth. It's worth noting that uh, the first one that was only held a few years ago had 30 exhibitors. Really? Oh, okay. uh, so yeah, ma- a massive step up for the uh, for the event. I think that sort of shows just how how much floating uh, is growing, uh, and just as an energy source in general, and just sort of that buzz around the the opportunities it'll provide. But uh, in terms of the the content from the conference itself, uh, there was quite a lot. Uh, on the first day, Renewable UK released a report going into floating offshore wind and sort of diving into its uh, its forecasts for the energy source moving forward. Uh, between last year and this year, uh, the energy source has seen a thirty two percent increase in uh, pipeline activity. 
So that doesn't cover it; just cover active assets, but you know, um, projects that are coming up uh, and being sort of actively sought after. Uh, the the UK is currently the second highest producer of floating offshore wind, and um, it will represent over half of the UK's offshore wind generation by 2050, Renewable UK says. This will generate around £43.6 billion of economic value and will create more than 29,000 jobs, the industry body says. That's, I think that, again, it, much like the attendees and the growth of the panel, uh, the, the discussions, it, it shows just sort of how much this is rolling out, right? But uh, in terms of conversation topics actually in the room, uh, I think Andrew will join me in saying a massive conversation topic was standardization. Uh, there was a lot, of, a lot of discuss, discussion around that, so much so that um, I wrote a wee article uh, that went out, out on the start of the second day, just sort of summarizing all the chat around uh, standardization as opposed to sort of covering them all individually. There was a lot of talk around sort of is this the way forward for the sector or you know how and how do we achieve it um I, i've got a couple of couple of quotes here stenner from equinor um, their head of floating offshore wind says that um the uk needs to foster more collaboration and standard standardization across all developers in supply chain and that's, that's that was I think something that was quite interesting was the uh, the discussion around that interaction between developers and supply chain. The second day started with a standardization chat, um, and chair of the panel mentioned that it was only developers on the panel, and next year they probably should have supply chain joining in on that conversation. What's the equi- what's the equivalent there from like a manal um, to a d- developer only panel? Yeah, I don't know. A Danil? Wow. Danil. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's, uh, that's maybe a piece in and of itself. <laughs> uh, it's, it, the standardization Danil industry uh, shocked at <laughs> lack of supply chain representation. That's a good point, though, right? They should have suppliers on there because that's where these solutions are going to come up from, right? It's going to be the supply chain in the main. So, it, yeah, it's a valid point. Yeah, 100%. I think, um, I think that, was, that was kind of like a key takeaway for me, at least, listening to... The also also many people speaking about standardization was the fact that it's only going to come from both uh, supply chain and developers working hand in hand. The industry using its favorite tagline of collaboration once again just becomes meaningless, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it does. Yeah, just uh, all. I feel like every event uh, when when panelists are asked. What's your key takeaway from this topic? It's always collaboration. <laughs> I, th- I think it's worth jump, jumping in on just the scale of, of why that's important, right? Because I think they were, you know, the uh, Stainer from Equinor was just saying, you know, we can't, we can't be going into more you know, wanting to build projects in a couple of years and have 150 uh, concept designs for floaters. And then what was interesting to tie that back to the supply chain point was someone from, um, I think, Global Energy Group saying, you know, they have to they have to de- have specific types of cranes depending on the ones that you want to do. So like their investments also depend on what what facilities, what foundations that you're um, you're wanting to build. So like, it's not just a case of oh we're we're not sure about our project. He's like all of those investments filter down, and he was sort of calling on people to be bold because the the ones that can make the decisions now and just say right we're we're picking this foundation or we're picking this structure will then be able to secure that capacity and we'll be able to sort of foster the investment that we're talking around a lot um, at events like these so yeah it's 
to, to, to return to the Danel, important that those voices are heard, I think, for sure. Which certainly on the, on the panels that I was on, I think there was decent representation. But yeah, interesting that on the dedicated standardization panel, there was not a, a little supply chain voice. Yeah, it was, it was quite an interesting, uh, quite an interesting, maybe not oversight. Uh, obviously, these, uh, these events have a lot of moving parts. Maybe once upon a time, there was meant to be a supply chain member. And that's why... Uh, the chair from Scottish Renewables highlighted it, not sure. Um, but yeah, it, it's an interesting point around standardisation and sort of just how it's deli- uh, delivered. Uh, Shan Lloyd-Reese was on that opening panel on the second day, uh, the UK supply chain champion. So maybe you could say that she's uh, on there sort of representing to a certain extent. And she made an interesting point around learning from oil and gas. And again, it's one of those things we do hear time and time again when speaking about offshore wind or just offshore green energy in general. But she mentioned that, you know, when it came to development in the uh, in the North Sea, it only took a couple of years to standardize the, the design of rigs to be semi-sub or jack-up. And in the build-up to that, there were a plethora of different approaches being considered and tested and... After about a couple of years, it was, well, these two are the ones that work, so we're rolling that out, you know? Um, so I guess I guess the question is, once we get more and more of these projects in the water, is that when we're going to start seeing developers go, well, these are the ones that work, so we're just going to commit to that, and that's when standardization is going to come up? Or do we need to set a blueprint now, set a, road, a roadmap, and then go, well, we can tweak this moving forward, but as things stand, this is the correct way to do things. It, it's an interesting discussion. I just think at the, the the event more widely, it was it was really interesting to see those discussions we had in in pretty much every session because I think it speaks to the the fact that we hear a lot about floating wind and it, like as you say, this pipeline is growing. Um, but I think in the session that I was in, they were saying you know the pipeline grows every year, but the actual delivery at the moment is shrinking because the costs and the sort of the readiness of the sector to actually start building these things amid all the headwinds that we see in every other industry you know is is becoming a little bit more difficult uh, the investors are still 100% behind seemingly um wanting to get these done but the actual kind of momentum you know i think Alistair, that you know we were at the event last year i think that a lot of the discussions felt like the same discussions that were happening there and i think if you're in the industry that's good you know obviously you need to be collaborating and talking to each other um but i think it still it speaks to the earliness of this industry um that you know we're, we're not seeing big investments we're not seeing kind of big contracts dished out you know they were saying i think in the early sessions they don't kind of again if you don't know what structure you're using you don't know what anchor you're using you don't know whether it's kind of cable you need to do so a lot of people are there and they're speaking and they have those conversations which is great but from a for, yeah from an actual kind of money on the table thing we're just not quite there yet one thing I enjoy that I think oil and gas should do is to have stands for projects, right? So like you don't need to go to the Shell stand, you don't need to go to the BP stand because you have a stand that is like this wind project, this is a joint venture or something. I like that a lot. You know, imagine that you go to the Johan Sverdrop stand or whatever in ONS and just, I, all I want to know about from you guys is Johan Sverdrop stuff and everyone's in the right place. Clarted with just stop oil flags, but yeah, yeah <laughs> I, I get your meaning. If or event organizers can listen to me about that, that would be great. <laughs> They're listening, that's right. The, the thing about the standardization I just maybe wanted to come in quickly. Um, yeah, I think again to that point about how early the industry is, it was only last, it was like October last year, EMEC unveiled floating wind test site plans for Orkney. Um, 
the month before that, I remember we did a report about from the NZTC and the Technology Leadership Board, critical years ahead for rapid test and deployment of new technologies for floating wind, among other things. I mean, that's that's not 12 months ago these things came in. Um, so, I mean, if they think that they should have a standardized set up by now, um, yeah, I, I don't know. That seems to me of exceptionally rapid, um, appreciating, of course, that there are goals for floating wind at scale in the relatively near term. But um, yeah, it'd be good to know, to find out when do they think there would an, an actual standardized design come out? Because it seems to me there's dozens of um, different technologies getting getting kind of tested out there right now and, and, and seeing how that plays out. But yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting landscape. Okay, well, look, thanks very much for that, Ryan. Um, we'll have to get you a tent or something for the PNJ Live, just a, maybe a, a cabin, I don't know. Yeah, a, a nice uh, plug socket would be great because uh, I did find myself uh, sat on the floor in the corner next to a single plug socket trying to charge both my, my work phone and my laptop and kind of leapfrogging between the two throughout the, the day. So yeah, I, if we could get a nice power generator uh, next to that tent, it would be lovely. On that happy note, uh, we will park that section there. Um, next up, a look at the shifting M&A landscape in the North Sea. Have you been searching for the latest sustainability news, developments, insights and analysis? Why not have it delivered straight to your inbox? Sense of Sustainability is the weekly newsletter for individuals and organizations committed to a more sustainable future. Join the conversation and head to sgvoice.net slash sign up to sign up for our newsletter. Join the conversation and head to sgvoice.com slash sign up to sign up for our newsletter. Okay, so we've had, uh, well, several kind of M&A deals or offers or sales been reported in the last month. And, and that's on top of, in the last week or so, you know, a case of a company going into administration. Another firm, uh, it was announced, or we found out, exiting uh, a project in the North Sea. All of which has kind of led to some sizable opportunities out there for mergers and acquisitions um, for any opportunistic company seeking to come in. Now, all of that... Um, with the heavy caveat of things like the windfall tax, of course, our old friend, the windfall tax, which uh, doesn't not an not a Energy Voice podcast that goes by without mentioning that. Um, first up, um, IOG, um, once quite a hopeful Southern North Sea producer, still I think the largest produ- uh, the excuse me the newest producer in the UK, uh, starting up its Saturn Banks project in March twenty two, I think. Um, went into administration or announced they'd be going into administration in the last week. They had been collecting smaller fields and building them up as part of this Saturn Banks hub in the Southern North Sea. Lots of success, um, certainly in the early days, it seemed, in, in building that vision, uh, you know, acquiring these projects. They recommissioned the the Thames pipeline, I think, in 2018. Uh, a year later, they got a farm in from Cal Energy Resources. Um, yeah, that's, uh, I think that was, is backed by like Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway investment vehicle, so that's you know quite a quite a shot in the arm for them there. Um, but recently, though, since hitting production um, and in the lead up to that, I believe they've been plagued by these operational issues, um, specifically kind of the the Southwark field in the region, uh, drilling issues. At one point or the other, I believe we were reporting um, about a drilling rig in in the region for IOG punching through the seafloor. Um, but the straw that seemed to kind of broken the camel's back it had this uh, interest payments coming up on a 100 million euro bond. Um, they had a waiver to that. They'd sought another. 
but hadn't been achieved in time. And that led to them announcing that the company will be placed into administration, uh, unfortunately. Um, talks on additional capital injection or, or restructuring. Um, and they said that those talks will continue as the administration process gets underway. Um, I'm hopefully not being flippant here, but I, 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 I struggle to see who would inject cash into a business going into administration, but that's what they said. Um, but what about now? I mean, uh, we kind of spoke to Ashley Kelty at uh, the investment bank Panmer Gordon about this. He's been following IOG for a long time and uh, his thoughts and seems to make sense was that it's an opportunity for, again, some opportunistic um, smaller players to potentially come in and, and pick up some Southern North Sea uh, assets. Um, and that's just one of kind of several um, changes we might see and we'll get into. Um, before I move on, though, any thoughts on IOG? Andrew, I think you spoke to them a couple of times for your for pieces for us. Yeah, I've followed them for quite a while. I think it's it's a disappointing um bump in the road for the company if, if it's you know if the company even kind of survives through that process and the assets aren't sold off i think it was a really a truly innovative project in the sense of recommissioning that pipeline um i think they kind of started to face these issues which at first glance looked like you know bad luck um and i think there was a, a string of incidents that at that point then i think i hope i'm not putting words in, in ashley kelty's mouth but i think he'd followed them for some time and felt the management team kind of hadn't got a grasp of what those issues were and had maybe kind of a lot of the planning around it maybe hadn't been up to the standard that you might have expected or certainly they encountered a lot of things that they weren't expecting and you have to wonder whether that is yeah truly kind of bad luck or whether that's failure to plan for all of these eventualities and maybe a misunderstanding of the basin i'm not sure um but i think it is it is disappointing it seemed like a great even from from a purely kind of low carbon perspective, I know they push that a lot. But you know, this recommissioning of the pipeline, kind of using reusing a lot of assets, and then these small unmanned platforms. It's gas, which obviously is, you know, the UK kind of at that point certainly, and, and still now needs. Um, so yeah, I'm disappointed to see that news. Despite having kind of followed this for a while and, and gone through all those hurdles, I, I did think that they might be able to kind of salvage something. But perhaps yeah, and you new. Uh, opportunistic buyer may be able to to bring something out of that yet and and another opportunity uh, if we can call it that is is the tain project so i had news this week um repsol sinopec had been looking for a long time um at kind of getting this towards fids in the outer muddy firth it's a small oil field um but it's partner viaro energy uh, in a, well actually it's partner viaro energy in accounts signed and, and published this week said it was going after 2025 for first oil it would use the bleo home FPSO in, in the Murray Firth to, to, to develop it. So that seemed fine, but went to Repsol Sinopec and said, actually, no, we've exited the project. Um, no longer economic, um, according to their projections. Um, and, and as I said, it's a small field, but 10 million barrels, not really going to cause too much trouble. But uh, where, where some of the news comes around that is it causes quite a lot of questions, uh, significant, substantial questions for uh, i3 Energy, uh, based in West Hill in Aberdeenshire. Um, they had hoped to unitize their Serenity project nearby with Tain. They thought, in fact, it's the same reservoir, I believe. Um, Serenity had at one point hoped to have been a kind of a company maker. 100 million barrels has been some of the projections, but they had a disappointing appraisal well uh, last year, I believe. Um, nonetheless, um, i3 said at the time that they thought there'd be a way forward with the, the project. We hadn't really had any updated figures in terms of expectations for Serenity. Um, and this week, I3 basically stuck with that. They said, uh, Tain, you know, now that's been relinquished, it could be picked up by another um, partner. Um, 
they would have to find another, it would seem they would have to find another off-take solution um, and find a, a somebody willing to come in. Um, but but ultimately, they were kind of saying that this is an opportunity for someone else to come in, and they've been speaking to interested parties with the NSTA uh, and otherwise, um, which sounds, uh, uh, to me, it's, it's certainly a glass-half-full outlook, to put it lightly. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, if, if Repsol Sinopec, which has, you know, very close by infrastructure, won't get after it, you know, again, you, you do wonder... Uh, what happens there. Um, but yeah, I'll be interested to see who these parties are. Um, maybe a couple hours to run through with you guys. Um, last month we had reported Shell taking final bids on Southern North Sea assets. Um, we've got Total last month reported to be taking uh, or seeking offers on parts of its West of Shetland portfolio. Obviously we've got Ithaca trying to find a partner on Cambo in the West of Shetland. Nothing new yet on BP with the Foynhaven field. That's a 200 million barrel field in the west of Shetland. Nothing in the past year about that. They've just said to us recently they're still reviewing their options. Um, Orcadian Energy, uh, they've got a, an exclusive arrangement with, uh, an agreement, I should say, heads of terms with um, a, a, a potential farming partner for their pilot project. Um, I saw some speculation, rampant speculation, and this is speculation, but um, someone did make the very, very valid point. We don't know who that is, the person that's come in. You know, Orcadian's pilot project is Polymer Flood. Um, there's only one other project in the UK doing that and one other operator, and that's Ithaca uh, at Captain, which, by the way, is like pilot getting electrified. So, you know, we could do a sweepstake. Um, but basically, bottom line, there's an awful lot of opportunity for changing hands and portfolios, it would seem at the moment. Um, to what extent things like the windfall tax and otherwise put people off, we'll have to see. But yeah, it's interesting to see the landscape as it is. I mean, who do you see kind of come? I was having a similar conversation with someone recently. And who do you see kind of coming in to take a lot of these assets? Because I think he was, this person was saying, you know, it's unlikely to be private equity. Some of the super majors are kind of selling out of their stakes. So is it this mid, you know, mid-tiers? Are they kind of expanding now? And does, does the middle kind of squeeze outwards towards the bottom and the top? You know, what happens now? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, yeah, I, hard to say, but, you know, obviously we have had certain independents um, talk about going after acquisitions. I mean, for example, West of Shetland, you know, Prax, um, who bought out Hurricane Energy, they were, you know, a, a Hurricane One Asset, 8,000 barrels a day. They want to be a 50,000 barrel a day business. Um, one would assume that means they might be looking at some of these uh, opportunities. Um, for others, I would imagine it has the price has to be right. Um, again, you know, Serica have been pretty vocal about going after opportunities. They've not gone up. They haven't gone for opportunities at any cost, uh, and we saw that manifest itself with Kistos a year or so ago when they nearly reached a deal but couldn't quite get there. So they're not desperate to make a deal, but they want to. And they know they have to at some point. I think it's going to be the price is right for certain independents. If they can get to that, then yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't see any um, majors coming in, put it that way. It, it would certainly have to be you know further down, I think, um, at this point. But yeah, it's, it's interesting to see how that will play out. But, um, but yeah, any other thoughts on that, Ryan? You've been quiet. Um, no, I, I, think it's, I think it's quite interesting just to speak about you know uh, how uh, tain has been considered, uh, considered uneconomic. Because recently, you know, we were also speaking about uh, Dana's uh, Western Isles and how that's a similar situation closing eight years early because of that and it, uh, I was just sort of thinking to myself in the back uh, sort of while uh, while you guys were chatting away I was going there might be a, might be a piece and 
how many how many uh, how many uh, developments this year have shut down early or sort of been turned down due to being quote unquote uneconomic. Uh, I think that just sort of speaks to the the issues we're seeing across the industry with uh, windfall tax and inflation and the like. Sort of, but that's hitting pretty much every corner of the energy sector, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think th- again, all of this is caveated with obviously the uh, fiscal regime with an incoming general election. Um, so yeah, it, it, there's a, a lot of question marks over any potential deals, but nonetheless, they seem to be, it seems to be the questions are being asked about whether people want to come in. So anyway, that I think is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. Thank you to Andrew and Ryan for joining me and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.